So a few months ago, some of you might have been here, some of you might remember, Reverend Ken preached a message. I don't actually remember much about the message. I remember, though, at the end, he put up a slide with three questions. And the three questions were designed for all of us, all of you, to have a little conversation with each other during the coffee hour after the service and get to know each other. Does anyone remember this? Was anybody here for that service? Do you remember what the first question was? Fairy tale. Who said that? Yeah. New member. Excellent. A. That was one of the questions. The first question was, if you were a fairy tale character, which one would you be? Now, I get the slides the night before. I have the inside track on these things. And I looked at that question, and I have to admit, I was like, what kind of question is this? And I actually had this conversation with a couple of people that Sunday as well. I think Rodney and I talked about it. I think Phyllis and I talked about it. I don't know if Phyllis is here. For some groups of people, that question doesn't really land well. If you think about what most fairy tales have to say to women, right? I mean, let's be real. There's a couple fairy tales where we're literally asleep the entire time. <laughs> That's all we do, Right? So thinking about what kind of fairy tale character resonated with me, who I would be, left me feeling a little stuck. So I did what any good millennial would do in this situation. I googled BuzzFeed, what fairy tale character are you? And I took a BuzzFeed quiz. And as I went through all of the options and it popped up with my result, it showed me this character right here, Rapunzel. I never thought of Rapunzel. I thought about Belle, you know, one of those nerdy characters, maybe. I didn't really connect with her. And so I Googled another quiz, and I took another quiz. And guess what came out? Rapunzel. So something was up, right? So I looked up the story of Rapunzel, and it turns out it was a little bit more interesting than I remembered it to be. I remembered the hair, right? That's what everybody remembers about Rapunzel. Rapunzel is in a tower. We know that, right? She got traded by her parents for some root vegetables to an evil witch. True story. <laughs> Look it up. Um, but she's stuck in this tower. She's being raised her whole life by this evil witch. And she sings while she's up there to pass the time. The singing is what the prince first hears as he's walking through the forest. And he starts to spend some time at the foot of the tower every day listening to her. And because he does that, he's there when one day the evil witch comes by and says the phrase we might remember, right? Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your long hair. And he learns how to climb up the tower. So when the witch leaves, the prince says, hey, Rapunzel, hi, nice to meet you. Will you let me up? Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your long hair. And she does. And the two of them fall in love. He comes back to visit her over and over again, and actually the two of them together hatch an escape plan. He's going to bring scraps of fabric every time he visits, and she's going to weave them into a rope so that they can climb out of the tower and get away. But it doesn't really work out. Rapunzel accidentally gives away the plan to the witch one day, and in her rage, she chops off all of Rapunzel's hair. She casts her out into the wilderness. And the witch waits with that long lock of hair for the prince to come. 
When he says, Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your long hair, he climbs up that lock of hair only to find his princess gone and the evil witch in her place. And he is so freaked out that he falls, jumps out of the tower onto a bed of thorns and is blinded. Smooth move, prince. (laughs) He also heads off into the wilderness, blindly wandering, until he finds Rapunzel there. And when she sees him again, the tears of joy from her eyes fall into his eyes and restore his sight. The end. I didn't remember any of that. (laughs) It really made me think, and it made me realize that I actually do kind of really like Rapunzel. I'm okay identifying with her. Because she was a co-conspirator in her own rescue, right? A lot of stuff goes wrong for the two of them as they try to figure this out. But in the end, the two of them, in a way, really save each other. They're partners. It's not nearly your typical damsel in distress sits around waiting to be saved kind of story. As I thought back to fairy tales that I'd heard and all of those lessons that I took from them, it made me realize that when I was a kid, I really took in those kinds of fairy tales and those stories, in part, I think, because I was a kid who really believed in wishing. I never missed a wish opportunity. You all know them, right? What happens when you walk past a fountain? You have some change in your pocket, you throw a penny in, right? You see a penny on the ground, you pick it up. What are, what are other wish opportunities? We all probably know them. Star, eyelash on your cheek, birthday, candles, yep, and the dandelion. We have, all, we have the same list, you guys. <laughs> I never missed a chance to wish. I really thought, I think, when I was a kid, that if I figured out the rules and played by them, I would get my wish if I did it right. As I got older, I realized that there are a lot of different stories like that that we tell. There are some forms of religion that get very, very popular by promising that same thing. If we figure out the rules and we play by them just right, we'll get our wishes. There are some cultural stories that we tell that say things like, follow the rules and be a good girl, right? Be the right kind of girl and you'll be protected. There are some stories that say, just abide by the law and be respectful and do what the officer says and you'll be fine. There are stories that say, don't go into that neighborhood, right? Or don't associate with those people and you'll be safe. I think we know that all these stories aren't really true, at least not all the time. Rapunzel gets locked up in that tower based on that same craving for security. If we stay locked up in our safe little world, then no harm will come to us. But unfortunately, we know that that's not true because how many times, how many more times can we hear on the news when someone is interviewed after something terrible happens? I can't believe this is happening here. This is such a quiet community. This is such a nice place. Nothing like this ever happens here. We saw that happen last Sunday. This was the worst thing I read this week, maybe this year, maybe this lifetime. 
It's an article from the Chicago Tribune that a friend of mine shared on Facebook. It's called How to Protect Yourself During a Mass Shooting. It's bracing even to read that, right? Her caption said, I didn't want to read this. She said, it hurt me to read this, but I'm afraid that I might need it one day. And so I'm sharing it with all of you. Now, it's traumatic to even think about something like this. It's traumatic to recognize that it really happened, especially as we sit here in church on Sunday. So I want to invite you all to just breathe out, right? Take a breath for a minute. Recognize that you're here. Look around at the faces of people who love you, maybe some people you don't know, but who want nothing but good for everyone in this room. When I get scared sometimes still of flying, I try to think about the fact that thousands of planes have taken off that morning and thousands of planes have landed, even though I can imagine the worst. So I hope you'll remember that there are thousands of people gathered in churches just like this one right now all over the country who love each other and who are safe in this moment. The article that I read has interviews with security experts, with FBI agents, with veterans and military folks who have the experience of what it's like to come under fire. And it's a very visceral and very practical examination of what kinds of things help people survive in those times. One of the experts that they interview talks about the Virginia Tech shootings. And he goes through and looks at three different classrooms and looks at what kinds of things increased the chances of survival for the students and the professors in those classrooms. Now, none of this obviously is meant to blame anyone for what happened to them. Who can imagine trying to make a choice in that moment of what you should do? The blame lies entirely on the real and heinous murderer. And yet there were big differences in what happened in those classrooms. In one of the classrooms, all of the students got down and they hid under their desks. That was the classroom with the worst survival rate. In another classroom, everyone in the room decided they were going to jump out of a second-story window. And a lot of them were injured, a lot of them broke bones, but they all survived. And in a third classroom, everyone took their desks and their chairs and they pushed them up against the door to the classroom. They created a barricade. And a few brave students sat on the floor, got down low, and pressed their bodies up against that barricade to hold it in place. In that classroom, the shooter actually tried to enter. He tried to shoot, and he shot a few rounds of bullets into the door. But when he realized he wasn't going to be able to get through, he moved on. And everyone in that classroom survived. The takeaway from this article is actually very simple. It just says, be an active participant in your own survival. Be an active participant in your own survival. 
this article had me thinking a lot about a conversation I've seen, maybe some of you have seen, if you've been online this week, this energy behind this phrase, thoughts and prayers. Right? There's a lot of debate going on. Thoughts and prayers enough. We need more than thoughts and prayers. Don't say thoughts and prayers, right? I don't think it's wrong ever to hold someone in our thoughts or to say a prayer. But if we're not careful, thoughts and prayers alone can become like hiding under those desks. What else can we do? What end can we add? What more, what extra thing, what other creative option might there be beyond that? How can we go beyond and become active participants in all of our survival? How can we move past that natural urge to hide and become active and risking and vital and connected in these moments? Because otherwise, we might end up with a lot more of that learned helplessness that we're already starting to see. Right? Just another mass shooting in America. There's another article that I read that I liked a lot better. It doesn't really make any of this sound any easier, but I really preferred its tips. It was from a Baptist minister who is also a veteran, veteran of the Army National Guard, Benjamin Boswell. He wrote an op-ed saying, I got a lot of interview requests all week, right, for the same exact thing. People wanted me to comment on church security as someone with one foot in both of these roles, right, experience in the military and experience as a pastor. And they said, you know, what are the right strategies? Is it metal detectors in churches? Is it more guns in churches? Is it all of these different ways that we might protect ourselves? And he said, you know, I didn't answer any of these interview requests because all I wanted to say back was that it's our lust for security that got us here. He said, true security is a world without automatic weapons. True security is a world without toxic masculinity and patriarchy and homophobia. True security is a world where our vets are given a new purpose to help build the common good when they return. True security is a world where domestic violence offenders get treatment instead of ammunition. True security is a world where people are engaged in an active peace instead of negligent violence. And he said, when the people of God, in his words, get up off of the pew cushions to act, instead of living in despair, that nothing can be done. That's true security. That's when we'll be safe. This is really heavy stuff. And these can feel like overwhelming, big cultural problems that None of us can do anything about on our own. But I think that this dynamic of helplessness shows up in our personal lives sometimes. And when it shows up in our personal lives, it gives us an opportunity to practice. To practice what it's like to resist that sense of helplessness. And so I'm going to tell you a personal story of how this showed up in my life. I'm 34. And last year, I went to the doctor for my annual checkup, my annual visit. 
And the doctor asked me a question that I knew was coming. I knew one of these days it would be the time that she would look up from her chart and say, Lee, do you want to have children? Last year was that year. And I knew that she wasn't asking to make conversation, right? I knew that she wasn't asking as small talk or to get to know me a little bit better. She was asking because it was time to discuss options, capital O, options. I'm not getting any younger, right? And so she asked me, Lee, do you want to have children? And what I said was, yes, I do, but it's not really up to me, is it? Thank God for her looking up from her chart with her eyebrow all the way up to here. <laughs> she said, what do you mean? I said, oh, I mean, I, I know. I have, I have three or four good friends, actually, who've done the whole intentional solo parent thing, right? They get the sperm donor. They're raising a child by themselves. And I've thought about it. I really have. But for a lot of reasons, I don't think that's a good idea for me. And so, yes, I would love to have children, but I only want to have children if I'm partnered. And so it's not really up to me. She said, okay. And she proceeded to tell me about my options. And we had a perfectly calm and lovely conversation about assisted reproductive technologies. And I held back tears the whole time. Because I finally heard myself. I heard myself out loud say a story that I had told myself inside many times. I heard and I realized that I had given up too much. It's not really up to me. Was this helplessness that I had begun to find more comfortable than disappointment and risk? Almost like I had decided, really, to let somebody else make that choice for me, if they wanted, if they showed up. I was sitting around in the tower, waiting to be saved. That ended up being a day when I started to change a lot about how I was approaching my own life. Because after holding back tears in the doctor's office, I got home and they started to flow. I realized I had become helpless, and I didn't want to do that. I got back into therapy. I got some really good books to read. And over the past year, I've really taken on a new angle of what it means to be an active participant in my own life as a result. We're all tempted by helplessness sometimes, because it's a comforting fantasy, right? That someone's going to come along and save us, give us what we want, take away the thing we don't. But the trouble is it's a comforting fantasy until it isn't. Maybe the thing that you have felt helpless about is different than mine. But all helplessness has that same dynamic, deciding that we're just going to let someone else write the end of our story. And it sounds like work to take that active step and to engage, and it really is work. 
But the work is only overwhelming if we swing all the way to the other extreme, right? If we think that we need to be the sole authors, that we need to be triumphant and fully self-determined in writing our own story, but that's the prince, right? That's a falsehood of a different kind. That's not the truth of our lives either. The truth is in the grace of reaching out, of connecting, of realizing that we don't just write the story by ourselves. We work it out and we write it out together. This week, there was some good news. We have a lot of new people helping to write our national story together after Tuesday. Tuesday's elections were remarkable in a lot of different ways. And for a lot of states and for our country, we saw a lot of firsts. A lot of people who were the first of their racial background, their ethnic background, the first of their gender, the first of their religion, to be elected to represent us all into whatever public office they were running for. There is a woman who got a little bit less press than some of these folks. Some of you might have heard her story. Her name was Ashley Bennett. She is one of the newest county legislators in Atlantic County in South Jersey. Anybody read about Ashley? A couple people. So she's not a first. She wasn't the first of any kind to hold the office that she held but she did put herself out there in a different way. You see, Ashley didn't ever see herself getting into politics. She had two friends in the towers on 9-11. And after that day, she decided she was going to dedicate her life to helping people in whatever way she could. So she became an EMT when she was 17. And for the last few years, she'd been working in a psychiatric crisis center, helping folks when they're in trouble. She couldn't get off work the day of the Women's March, the day that many of you attended, I know, in D.C. or in Philadelphia when there were marches all across the country right after the presidential inauguration to stand up for the kinds of values of inclusivity, right, resisting this rising tide of nativism and white supremacy that we've been hearing about in our country. But she was so inspired watching the coverage on TV and seeing the pictures of her friends. And then one of her friends sent her a different kind of picture. It was a screenshot from her local county legislator, a man named John Carmen. The day of the Women's March, he posted two jokes on his Facebook page. You might have seen them yourselves. One of them was a picture of a woman stirring a big pot of soup on the stove, and the caption said, Will the march be over in time for them to cook dinner? Yeah, I get it but not funny, right? The other one showed a picture of all the women gathered, and men gathered on the National Mall, and the caption said, there must be a large sandwich-making class going on in D.C. today. Well, Ashley didn't like that. She didn't like the way that her county legislator was dismissing the fact that people were showing up to try to do something. And so she decided she was going to go to the next county legislature meeting 
And it turns out she wasn't the only one. A few dozen people from within her county showed up to speak to John Carmen, to say that they didn't find those jokes funny, to ask him to explain what he meant, and to ask for an apology. But instead of an apology, he doubled down. And so she went home from that meeting furious. She said, I was sitting at my kitchen table ranting to my family. I was so angry. And they said, well, why don't you run for a seat? And she said, why don't I run for a seat? (laughs) If you Google Ashley Bennett, you'll find a wonderful Washington Post article that talks about how all of this happened and what the process she went through was like. But long story short, she did run for John Carmen's seat, and she beat John Carmen on Tuesday. And this is just one example for me of what it looks like to not just sit around and wait for someone else to write the end of your story. Just one way. There is so much going on right now that makes it seem some days like the most reasonable and practical thing to do is to make ourselves as comfortable as we can in our towers with our wishes and our hopes and our thoughts and our prayers. But there is something to be said for reaching out, uncertain as it is. It's a way to participate in our own survival. This is where we dig deeper in these stories, past the loss of the illusion, past the betrayal of that magical story that we wish were true. This is where we realize that we get to help write the ending to our own story. We're never the sole authors, but we have a say in where all our stories go and how all our stories end. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God of our hearts, who knows all of our deepest yearnings, who knows what it feels like when we are discouraged who speaks to us in our own heart's language. Help us remember that there is a presence and a courage and a strength that is larger than each of us. That wherever that source comes from, whatever language it speaks to us, it is our faith here that it does not leave us. That it's with us from the beginning until the end. May we remember that in those difficult moments that we all face. For these prayers I've spoken out loud and for the prayers that each of these people carries on their hearts, we say amen.